Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Our guest today is Keith David Wattenpah, who is a renowned American academic, professor and founding director of the Human Rights Studies program at University of California, Davis. Wattenpah is a leading American historian of the contemporary Middle East, human rights and modern humanitarianism, and he is an expert on genocide and its denial and the role of the refugee and displaced peoples in world history. Since 2013, Wattenpo has directed an, inter an international multidisciplinary research project to assist refugee university students and scholars fleeing the war in Syria. Mm -hmm. And together with his team developed and deployed in the Middle East, the Article 26 Backpack, the universal human rights tool for academic mobility about which we will also talk during our podcast. Um, he is the author of uh, Being Modern in the Middle East, Revolution, Nationalism, Colonialism, and Arab Middle Eastern Class, and most recently, the multiple award-winning Bread from Stones, The Middle East, and the Making of Modern Humanitarianism. He recently won the Institute of International Education Centennial Medal in recognition of his research advocacy and the Article 26 backpack. So without further ado, Keith David Watampo, I have the pleasure to host you on this panel today in New York City. Thank you, Haru. We should uh, let our visitors know that we are in the Zohrab Information Center at the Armenian Diocese. There is a busy street outside the window here, but it's really a pleasure to be uh, here and That's right. also um, you know, thank the center for all of its support, um, including to me when I was, I was working on my, my second book. So it's great to see you here and it's great to be here in New York. Thank you, Keith. So uh, we mentioned in the introduction about your latest book, Bread from Stones. Would you let us know what was the reason that, what was your incentive to write that book, to research these kinds of mm -hmm. topics? I, I'm, the, book, the book in a way began uh, when I was living in Aleppo. And I was working on my very first book about the Arab middle class and uh, spending a lot of time with the the people and the various communities of Aleppo. And I remember on one April 24th, and we should also note that today is April 24th That's when we're right. doing our conversation. On one April 24th, uh, Helnar Zaitlian Wattenpah, who is also known to listeners of this podcast, uh, she and I went out to the old Armenian cemetery on the outskirts of town in Aleppo. And uh, while the uh, Homenet men were doing their flag ceremony, we got really bored and one, oh, no, I think there was a priest giving a talk. Yeah, we got very bored and we started wandering through the cemetery and we came upon the memorial to Karen Yeppe. And Karen Yeppe was a um, Danish uh, humanitarian worker who uh, ran the League of Nations Rescue Home in Aleppo, uh, which is now the um, Armenian Gemaran in Aleppo. Where I went. That's right. And uh, I said, who is this? Woman, and underneath her uh, picture, there was uh, the line uh, "Mother of Armenians," which I thought was thought was very very interesting. Right. And so I was I became very interested in the rescue home and the 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 important humanitarian and human rights dimensions of um, the post genocide, post World War One attempts to uh, um, recover and inter and end the human trafficking, uh, which had been so much a part of the genocide itself. And so from there, uh, that led to the very first in-depth study of um, the trafficking of women and children and the rescue efforts um, 
uh, ever really done. And it appeared that that article led to, I mean, that research led to an article that appeared in the American Historical Review in 2010. And it just opened a whole series of other questions for me about uh, humanitarianism, and in particular, the role of um, Near East Relief, uh, which is a very charismatic organization, especially in the, uh, the period of the genocide of Near East Relief, uh, in, in humanitarianism, and what could tell us about America's role in the Middle East, about what, um, about the, um, <clears throat> the role of uh, the Armenian diaspora in the rebuilding of post-genocide, of a post-genocide Armenian community, and then also uh, tell us more about, and this is before the great, the war in Syria, this, this project started, but tell us a little bit or more about you know, what, what it means to be a refugee and how international systems and uh, treaties and organizations will help and hinder efforts to make the lives of refugees slightly more livable. Uh, Keith, you were mentioning about uh, the role of Americans in the Middle East and uh, the humanitarian initiatives that started mm -hmm. at that time. And I want to quote a few lines from mm -hmm. the preface of your book, Bread from Stones. I now see a problem in the way technical assistance can often be a substitute for efforts to extend human rights, empower women and minorities, and achieve justice in unjust societies. In its worst forms, it merely helps expand the power and authority of dictators, kings, and military juntas. Uh, you argue that humanitarian response, oh, that was the end of the cause. Uh, so, so, so you argue that the humanitarian response to the 1915 genocide of the Ottoman Armenians was not driven by neutrality, but rather than by a complex, often misguided sense of what we now would call restorative justice and social equity too. So how do you combine these two thoughts? Well, uh, that's a very good question. So the, well, I'll take the second part first. Yeah. One of the things that I, I noticed and, and began to understand as I worked in the archives of Near East Relief, but also in the memoirs of survivors and workers in the region, is that American Near East Relief really saw as part of its mission in the Middle East after the First World War, trying to fix the problems caused by the genocide. Not generic social problems of development or poverty, which are so important in contemporary discussions about development and assistance and humanitarianism, but rather they saw that a great political and social crime had taken place in the form of the genocide, uh, and they saw their role as a, as a unique uh, actor in repairing and restore, repairing the damage done by the genocide, and restoring the Armenians to some kind of, you know, not not to a pre-genocide condition, but at least something that would allow them to persist and continue as a people, because they saw what had happened to them as unjust, and they saw themselves as agents of justice. Now, this didn't make them very popular with the the Turkish government or with the local Arab elite in places like Syria and Lebanon, and it and was often um, portrayed by these by the Turkish government and others as a um, as a kind of bias or partiality in the provision of assistance. But of course, the question remains, you know, was the Turkish government going to help the Armenians repatriate and resettle to Anatolia? Well, of course not. So you know, there was no one on their side. And Near East Relief decided, and it was a very sim uh, simplified version of this idea, that they were going to be on the side of the Armenians 
um, in terms of assistance and rebuilding uh, and redevelopment. And the, the, but the first part of your, of your question about how humanitarianism can oftentimes um, help foster some of the worst human rights abuses is really seen in situations where um, uh, human rights, I mean, humanitarian organizations um, collaborate and work with human rights abusing governments but in that act, don't try to call attention to the human rights abuses which those governments are doing, and instead um, you know, introduce new technology or new development projects, which in some cases really extend the reach of that government to rural areas or smaller communities, or sometimes you know, uh, you know, in the development, for example, of education, turn education into a weapon that, that governments can use to, uh, to punish their own people. I mean, I'm thinking back to sort of big development schemes, for example, that, that were really all the, uh, the fad in the 1960s that usually you know, required you know, the building of great dams or the alteration of the environment, which you know, might have been great for uh, governments at the center who could get revenue from electricity or control agriculture, but destroyed the way of life of the people living along these rivers or in these environmentally um, uh, vulnerable areas. So that's something that, that really... that that perplexes me sometimes and really challenges my thinking sometimes because, you know, we, when we work in the Middle East, we don't often have an opportunity to work with governments that don't routinely abuse the human rights of their people. And so if we, we, we want to make a difference or think we can make a difference, it means that we may have to work with some pretty terrible, terrible actors. And I think some of my thinking these days is, is, is moving in the direction that we should not, that either humanitarianism is connected to a, a sort of robust insistence on human rights, and in, and in the absence of that ability, that we should not engage in these projects. Well, that leads me to my next question about bias in mm -hmm. humanitarianism that you were addressing just now. Uh, many new repressive regimes around the world, mm -hmm. from South America to Eastern Europe and the Middle East, of course, uh, they they label humanitarian workers as mm -hmm. biased, and this has roots in history, mm -hmm. and uh, and this was addressed in your works too, in your researches. Mm -hmm. uh, would you explain us more about that? Well, one of the things that I noticed, so very early on, I'll, I'll just sort of backtrack a little bit with a, a digression. So. When my first work appeared about um, the trafficking of women and girls during the genocide, and then the response of uh, uh, Near East Relief and the international community in the Foreign League of Nations, uh, my university published a, an article about it in their alumni magazine. And it elicited this terrible response from the Assembly of Turkish American Associations, as well as a Turkish alumnus of UC Davis who wrote in saying, you know, why is Wattenpah talking about humanitarianism? These uh, relief workers were all biased and all they did was help Christians and they didn't help Muslims, right? Which, you know, is, is on its face not true, but doesn't recognize the fact, of course, that um, the Armenians faced genocide and extermination. Uh, and They didn't have a state that was going to protect them. The state that was supposed to protect them, the Ottoman Empire, actually murdered them and and destroyed their communities we all know we all know that story uh, but what's interesting is that this was an attempt to um, on his part to show bias in my own um, assertion that genocide had taken place 
And eventually this led, in fact, to a uh, threat of a lawsuit against me. It was, it was actually really hilarious in, in retrospect. But uh, this has been part and parcel of Turkish genocide denial is the accusation that the international community has always been out to get Turkey yeah. on behalf of Christians. And that the good example of this is how the humanitarian project only helped Christians. But of course, this disregards the fact that the genocide was against Armenian and Assyrian Christians. So, so I understand that this isn't a strategy by these repressive sides, parties, to uh, instead of addressing the root cause, the message, mm -hmm. the work of humanitarians, impeaching their credibility. Right. right. We see this in this. There's also a, a, a growing and terrible parallel with this with human rights non-governmental organizations that try to operate in the Middle East where they're increasingly banned. Uh, we see the expulsion of Human Rights Watch workers, I mean, right. analysts. Omar Shakir. That's right, you know, from Palestine or also from Egypt and Israel. Um, you know, we see the banning of non-governmental organizations, especially ones that are committed to lesbian, gay, bisexual uh, rights in Russia and Eastern Europe. OSF. Oh, and OSF being attacked in Hungary and being forced to right. relocate to Berlin. So this is a real uh, attacks on humanitarian assistance, attacks on human rights organizations. This is really part and parcel of the playbook, the playbook, dictator's playbook, as we say. And I think it's what's very important is for us as historians is to really, you know, well, it, it's, it's easy to sort of be cynical about humanitarians, you know, they're idealistic and so on, but also to recognize that often governments attack the work of humanitarians precisely to advance an authoritarian or anti-human rights agenda. Right. Uh, I want to move on to another subject in Armenian studies, mm -hmm. which is uh, being neglected. It's a, it's a gaping hole uh, that is the modern history of the Armenian communities uh, in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and not only in the Middle East, but mo mostly in the Middle East. How can we address this sure. issue? That's, that was, that's one of the other uh, entry points for, for my book, my, my latest book, which is that when you know, I, I, you know, in the, in the beginning of the 2000s and, and I mean, in the 2010s, there was really a sense that there was this enormous focus on the genocide period, about the killing period, about the dislocation period. Um, you know, wonderful work by everyone from Taner Akjam to sort of uh, uh, Urangur and, and Umit and others who were looking at the way the, the Ottoman Empire itself was was making the genocide happen, right? And this was very important work, I thought. But there was almost no attention being paid whatsoever to the survivor communities. And I thought this was driven by a couple things. The first was that most victims of genocide are men. Most historians of the genocide are men. Most survivors of the genocide were women and children and were not attracting the kind of attention that sort of male victims tend to tend to attract. And it was actually very important, you know, my work and the work of Lerna Ekmekjulu and other Nazan, Nazan and so on, who, who I think were more um, attuned to the the sort of a feminist critique of the study of genocide, that uh, then sort of emboldened us to think more about uh, what happened to survivors and survivor communities. And so that's one of the origins from bread, for bread from stones. Is like, you know, what happened after the genocide, right? And I think what also I find missing is, you know, I, you know, I'm, you know, 
I live for many years in Aleppo and I travel a time to Beirut and I see these incredibly vibrant, interesting and often, you know, really struggling Armenian communities in the Middle East. Uh, you know, my mother-in-law is from the, the rapidly shrinking but very interesting Armenian community in Egypt. Uh, and I, you know, and I know about the Armenian community. Istanbul, I think these are fascinating, interesting uh, right. subjects and very compelling. But where's their history? Who's, who's writing about, you know, the Armenians in Burj Hamoud in the 60s and 70s? Where could I go to find a good critical academic history of the Armenians of Aleppo in the period of, of uh, after the Second World War? It's, it's not there. Luckily, there are a lot of periodicals. Sure. There's a lot of, there's, there's an, this is from a historical perspective. Yeah. This is important because there is a, there are wonderful resources to do it. True. And there are still people alive who could even do oral history, but they won't be alive much longer. Yes. So I think that, um, you know, as we think about Armenian studies as a field moving forward, one of the issues is, is bringing to bear good social and cultural historical approaches to the history of the Armenian communities of the Middle East and diaspora, but also, you know, I mean, even in the United States. And I've always thought that, for example, Armenian, the Armenian communities of California and elsewhere would really be a wonderful topic from an American studies approach or American immigration approach as well. And so, I mean, if, if anyone is listening to me at this point in my podcast, uh, what I would encourage sure, yeah. us to, to think about is, is how, we can, how we can think about these post-genocide Armenian communities, not just as the survivors of genocide, but as people who built lives and communities, interacted with politics, emigrated, emigrated again, um, uh, and uh, and as a consequence, bring even more texture, I think, to a really vital um, a vital field in our, our broader studies of things from migration to uh, assimilation to um, to to survival uh, in the face of terrible terrible challenges. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, this conversation can go on longer, but unfortunately, we cannot. <laughs> We cannot go very long. This is a podcast. So uh, I want to thank you for this very sure. uh, interesting conversation. Well, to our listeners, I'm Hart Ekmanian from New York, and I thank you for your time and wish you have enjoyed this episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Thank you.